an iPod, a phone, and an internet communicator. An iPod, a phone. Are you getting it? The Glop Podcast is brought to you by NatureBox. What do you do when you want a snack, but all you can find is junk food? Rely on your self-control to resist the temptation, please. You eat the junk food. Start snacking healthy with NatureBox. NatureBox is offering Glop Culture listeners 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com slash glop. And by Wink, if you like good wine but can't even spell sommelier, it's time to take the stress out of wine shopping and try Wink. The new way to get all the best wines perfectly matched to your palate. Go to TryWink, that's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash glop. They'll even cover the shipping. And by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Glop Culture 35. All one word, Glop Culture 35, when you subscribe. Yes, it is the first Glop Culture Podcast of 2017, 10 days before the inauguration of Donald Trump. I am John Podhoritz in New York. In Washington, I believe Jonah Goldberg is on his Logitech headset. I am. <laughs> I am I indeed. Whoa, oh, turn the game that down, That is not buddy. a sponsor, but, uh, but Logitech is a fine headset, and uh, we're excited. I suppose we, we are. Yes, we are. And um, I believe somewhere around Maurice Avenue... On the Long Island <laughs> Expressway is Rob Long talking to us from his fancy limousine. Yeah, is that right, back in my Rob? limousine. No, that's wrong. And and I want to. Uh, th- this is actually going to make everybody feel. <laughs> this this is this is this is a curious brand conundrum. The first uh, I would say is I am not uh, in a limousine. I'm not in an Uber. I'm not being driven. I'm driving myself. I'm a man of the people. So I'm not some kind of crazy Hollywood elite. I'm just a normal working Joe driving to work, and I'm driving a is Subaru. Your, is your horse getting cold? <laughs> yeah, and I'm driving a Subaru, uh, which is uh, so now, now takes away all my cred because if there's one thing uh, conservatives hate, it's a dude driving a Subaru. I wouldn't say it's the one thing conservatives <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah. There's a list, and it's on it. It's, a, but it's like, on it, yeah. Like on the first page of the list. Before we get going, can I just say something about about our our uh, our new sponsor, Nature Box? They, they are delicious. I think their idea of like of selling the willpower thing with their product is a mistake because I, I you know I, I got a bag of those coconut uh, those cashew coconut things and they are delicious and I ate the entire bag like really in five minutes. So <clears throat> I wouldn't get I get them if you want tasty healthful treats, but don't get them if you think it's going to teach you a lesson about self restraint. Or don't uh, don't open the mail when you're as high as Rob usually is. <laughs> well, that's don't open the mail. <laughs> well, there you go. By the way, you guys, you may remember uh, last year. I think last year Rob uh, talked on this very podcast about the phenomenon known as microdosing, in which yes. people were taking tiny quantities yes. of lysergic acid or LSD. As mood stabilizers and uh, focus agents, and I just read an entire book on the subject of microdosing by the mm-hmm. uh, very uh, hyper and bipolar and uh, extremely anti-Israel and very left-wing writer Ayelet Waldman. 
called it a really good day, um, which is all about how she claims her her sanity and her marriage were saved by microdosing. So, um, Rob, I think uh, someone beat you to the market. Boy, did she ever. Uh, it, but it's not just there. It was, it, it's been everywhere since I discovered it. I ha- in, it, you know, full disclosure or confession mode, I have not, because I, I don't have connections in those worlds, been able to experiment with this uh, radically new uh, – uh, self-care, therapy. self-care of microdosing, but I do plan to do it. I'm not kidding. I do want to do it. And I won't tell you when I do it, but I will tell you when I've just done it. You know, and, if, and you can see if there's a difference. If you did a Venn diagram, uh, <laughs> people in your income bracket working out of their car, and then another diagram of people who have no contacts in that community... <laughs> There'd be a very <laughs> small overlap. <laughs> that is uh, un- undeniably true. Okay, I think we can probably close out now because we're not going to top that for the rest uh, for the rest of the hour. Even though I guess we have to talk about Meryl Streep and Donald Trump. Now, I, a full disclosure on my part is I spent about forty five minutes on the commentary podcast yesterday talking about Meryl Streep and Donald Trump. So. I may leave this to you guys to ventilate on the subject. Yeah, like that's going to happen, but go ahead. Ventilate on the subject of whether <laughs> the extremely uh, not, in my view, overrated uh, Meryl Streep speech represents a new front in the American culture war, as the New York Times declared this morning. Uh, you know, <sighs> because I don't know if you know this, but Hollywood is liberal and uh, said something. And someone in Hollywood said something nasty about a Republican politician, which has never <laughs> happened before. I well, mean, I mean, can, knock me over with a feather. Can Jeez. we just break it down a bit? Um, the, the weird thing about it was that uh, she sort of rehearsed these old arguments that, you know, you think that they have new arguments. Um but the, the thing that really struck me, I mean, two things, like the, the, the it's the call and response of it, the, the kind of old time, you know, camp revival meeting quality where uh, everyone knows what everyone else is going to say. She's going to say her thing and then he's going to tweet a response. And then, you know, it's so planned and practiced. But what I thought was amazing was that she even I mean, it, it, for a, a, what she knew she was getting the award. She had plenty of time to write a speech or to have somebody write one, I guess is a better way to put it. But um what was odd about it was how much boilerplate it was. You know, violence begets violence and respect. To the, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's playing the same song. Everyone else is like desperately searching for a new tune because they realize that things are changing. But these guys are playing the same song. I mean, what would have been great and would have made me respect her so much more is if she had simply gone back and found – Virtually the identical speech that someone had given at the Oscars in 1980 about Reagan or in 72 about Nixon and just said the same thing and have Hollywood go nuts. And then it would be like 48 hours later, some young hack would Nexus search it and find out that she was playing a joke on everybody by by running the same half century old boilerplate. 
But of course, she's sincere in all this, and she thinks that she's speaking truth to power, and and it's all. I, I just I have not been able to engage in it. I really haven't on either side because I just I, I'm sort of with Rob on this. I find it all so unbelievably trite. So right. boring. Well, and, I will say this: See, there are two aspects to it. Since I did have to break it down, so there are two aspects. <laughs> one of which is that the part of the speech in which she sort of talked about how he was, you know, uncivil and you know, made fun of Serge Kovaleski, the reporter's disability, and how that, you know, is a bad role model for America because it makes things, you know, thinkable and doable that might not otherwise have been doable. That, to me, seems to be a perfectly fine thing if you're going to make a point about it and go after. There were two things that she said that really gave the game away. One was this bizarre attack on how, you know, there's no art. There's not going to be any art if, you know, Donald Trump mm, gets his right. way. There's only going to be football and mixed martial arts fighting, uh, both of which I believe now have larger audiences than the than the, uh, film, than the motion picture industry. Oh, Rob, what did you do? <laughs> they found yeah. out your microduction. <laughs> I'm I'm uh, I'm in lower oh, side. I'm, I, I'm getting I'm getting passed by a hot salah ambulance. So um, oh hot salah uh, that's uh, hot salah the medical center somewhere. Uh, I yes I agree. I mean, yeah, it was too far. What I found first of all, I, I, what I found bizarre was the the the, the, the sort of picked over yesterday's news quality to it. Yes, and the hysterical part about the arts. But can we just I mean for, forget for a minute that she, that it was Donald Trump who said it. I, you don't think, John, that she's just a little bit overrated sometimes? I will say I've thought about this a great deal. Uh, <laughs> I think about her since I think the first published movie review I ever wrote was of Kramer versus Kramer. So that would have been 37, 38 years ago now. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I mean, you look at her resume and her the history of her performances from – the mid-70s until the present, and there is yeah. no uh, performer in the history of motion pictures who has done anything remotely like what she's done. But don't you ever feel like when you're watching a Meryl Streep movie that she's sitting next to you watching you watch it, and she's kind of poking you in the ribs and saying, look at this, I'm pretty good, right? No, See, that might like be a byproduct of microdosing, dude. If you oh. actually feel that way, yeah. like if talking to her, like if she's your spirit <laughs> she's animal... There. Yeah, then, then and that's then, and then she looked over and she had a giant the head of a giant owl. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and there goes wow. an Indian. But a wise old owl. And I and I walked inside the owl's mouth and it was like candy Um but I can I um, I uh since we're talking about the things that we've already written for other people, I, I uh was trying to put together some thoughts for my eight column in the Abu Dhabi English language newspaper, which only sounds like a joke, but it's not. And it doesn't sound uh, like was, it sounds like a money laundering operation. It, 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 yeah, let's just yeah. simmer down on that. Um, <laughs> um, we don't have to pursue that line of inquiry. Um, uh, what I was struck by was that people uh, people freaked out. I, I think it's just this general Trump freak out about you know, as you put it, a Hollywood actor saying something mean about a Republican president, which never happened before, and kind of missing the big picture here, which is that La La Land won seven Oscars. Uh, proving once again that Hollywood will give an Oscar to any movie about show business if it's re- decent. They, they, people in Hollywood love to watch movies about themselves. But also that th- this is the first one of those movies in a long time, and they used to have them every year or two. I mean there used to be musicals about Hollywood and show business and strivers. I mean the first Oscar for a talkie 
was uh, the Broadway Melody of 1929. Right. Um, well, first of all, it's the Golden Globes. That's number one, we should oh, say. Oh, did I say Oscars? Yeah. All right, right. And number two, what's interesting about La La Land is that, um, you know, three, I think three or four years ago it was – uh, the uh, Oscars, you know, gar- Oscars garlanded the silent film, uh, The Artist, uh, which was about yeah. a, a, a silent film star trying to make the transition to uh, talkies. And La La Land is like this year's Artist, only it's really, 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 really good. I love so, the Artist. So it has that. I mean, The Artist was cute. It was very overlong. I liked it, but but I mean, La La Land is actually, in fact, something very special. And I, uh, but most interesting, you think that that's the interesting thing? Yeah. To me, oh, go ahead, Jonah. Sorry. Well, I mean, I, just, I I want to just get back to the thing that bothers me about Meryl, the Meryl Streep part about it is just that it is, and it's and I want to bring it up mostly because I want to have an anecdote, but uh, it's the bravery on the cheap. You know, it's the telling an audience that loves you exactly what they want to hear um, so that media outlets that love you can call you a hero that has no social or political or economic cost to you. Um, And everyone, all these people agree to be part of the game. It's just, I find it so fraudulent and and grotesque. And it reminds me of, um, I remember, I think it was a Marty Peretz piece. This has to be 25 years ago during the one of the early waves of uh, free Mumia stuff. Mumia Abu-Jamal, for those who don't know, was a cop killer who became a cause celeb among the radical left because he was supposedly a political prisoner. Um, he wasn't. He's a murderer. Um, but they had a conference about Mumia in Paris. And it was a writer's conference. And at one point, someone got so worked up about the injustice done to this Marxist cop killer in Philadelphia that he stood up and ostentatiously snapped a pen in front of the entire room and said, I, for one, shall never write again until Mumia is free. <laughs> and <laughs> I always have this image. Now, like, I, I, I've never been able to track down who the writer was, but like this idea that, that this sort of you know, this North African uh, Marxist writer in Paris snapping his pen in symbolic solidarity with Mumia it had to be, well, I don't know, four minutes before he sort of forgot that he even made that promise. And Oh, but look, that fits perfectly with something that's going to go on on Inauguration Day, which is that a bunch of artists, American artists, like the photographer Cindy Sherman, among others, have announced that they are going to they're refusing to make art on the day of Donald Trump's inauguration as a protest of Donald Trump. Now in the and case of the GDP numbers are going to plummet. I mean in the case of Sidney Sherman on hopes Wait. that Donald Trump is inaugurated every day until the end of time <laughs> uh, if that were the case. Uh, but uh, but yes that that notion which is that you know in order to express my Rage! I am going to not work and make I'm money. I'm going to take the day off. It's, it's just a day, right? It's like, they're not it's, saying they're not going to they stop working entirely. It's just they're not, they're not working that day. Yeah, well, you know the very left-wing playwright Harold Pinter, uh, as he moved further and further and further to the left, would have dinner parties in his own house, to which uh, our friend uh, Jones and my friend David Price Jones would attend and. Harold Pinter would sometimes, in the middle of political discussions, get so angry that he would storm out 
of his own house. I <laughs> <laughs> love the idea. It's like, I will not sit here and listen to another word of this. <laughs> they would like walk out his own front door. <laughs> but it does it does have that very uh kind of delicious what is it they call it in the uh in the eccentric sex circles dom sub relationship where you're inviting people into your home voluntarily who you know will make you uh uncomfortable and in pain but you're you're, you're compelled to do it this is, there, there is something about that that there is some weird sort of almost pornographic glee with which uh, people on the left are are predicting doom and gloom. That there'll be no more art. There'll be no more this. There'll be that. Unfortunately, for Meryl Streep, there'll be plenty of art. It'll just be really tacky and horrible. It'll be like gold, gold art. But you know what isn't tacky and horrible, Rob? Is Nature Box our new it, sponsor? It really is. It's delicious, by the way. It's delicious. It makes snacks that actually taste great and are better for you. Created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners so you can feel great about snacking. NatureBox recently made their service even better, Rob. Now you can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel any time. It's simple. Go to NatureBox.com and check out their snack catalog. There are over 100 snacks to choose from, and they're constantly adding delicious new snacks. Choose the snacks you want, and they'll deliver them right to your door. With NatureBox, you'll never get bored. There are new ones each month inspired by real customer feedback. And if you ever try a snack you don't like, NatureBox will replace it for free. And I don't think that means that you have to regurgitate it, put it back in the package, and then send it back to NatureBox. You can have eaten it, and they will still replace it for free, which I think is really wonderful. Now, Rob, as our resident NatureBox expert, can you please tell us what your favorite NatureBox snacks have been? I inhaled the cashew coconut. I think it's called coconut cashews in about thirty nanoseconds, uh-huh. uh, and they're delicious. And they've got a really good um, kind of a trail mixy thing. Um, they got two kinds. I forget which kind. I, I like them both, but this one that, I, that that's more trail mixy, and the other that's more crunchy. I would okay, go for so, both of them. If I so were there you. you go. So look those up when you go when you try to find uh, Nature Box. Um, Sorry, I just uh, had a little bit of a computer glitch with my page here. Uh, right now, NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order when you go to naturebox.com slash glop. That's naturebox.com slash glop for 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash glop. We thank NatureBox for sponsoring the glop podcast. Totally now, let me, let, me, uh, let me throw at you guys my, my theory. Because a lot of people at the night of... Uh, uh, of the uh, street fest uh, on our side, we're saying, see, this is why Donald Trump won. It's this, uh, this, this is the, <laughs> yeah. or this is why Donald Trump won. Um, now, I think that what's interesting is this is not why Donald Trump won. Donald Trump didn't win because Hollywood hates Republicans. Um, however, there is this question about Trump, which is that a great many people voted for him and did so with misgivings, as I'm sure many people voted for Hillary with misgivings. If there is going to be an all-out culture war assault, as there is going to be, that is sort of like unrelenting, unyielding, takes up every single thing that he's ever done or said, or that anyone who's ever voted for him has ever done, anything like that, then what what at the very least is going to happen is that Trump's support is going to harden among the people who voted for him but have but are discomfited by him because 
they are going to feel like they're under attack. He's under attack and they're being right. attacked as he's being attacked. And so the enemy of my enemy is my friend and they are, you know, they are making his, uh, you know, sort of like the, um, the construction of a really serious supportive base more possible for Trump. What do you guys think of that? Well, I think that's right. I think though, that this has all been a long time in coming. Um, Ramesh had written about this very early on um, in the Bush administration, and then Chait picked it up, uh, that presidents more and more, in part because of polarization, but also um, causing more polarization, are now seen as totems in the culture war, right? I mean, it's like that. all that stuff with, with W was, if you liked W, it meant you were like one kind of American, and it didn't have very much to do with politics. It didn't have very much to do with ideology. It had to do with sort of virtue signaling and all that kind of stuff. And the same thing with Obama. I think that Obama tickled the erogenous zones of liberals in very much the same way Bush tickled the erogenous zones of a certain kind of conservative. And the same thing with with Trump. Trump is a um, – you know, the support for Trump among most of his hardcore followers has – it's only loosely about ideology. It's about a middle finger to the establishment. It's about nostalgia for an imagined past. It's about all sorts of cultural signifiers. And I think that uh, that is where we are going to be for a long time to come. Um, and it's not a good thing, but Trump didn't create it. I think Trump is accelerating the process, but so is the left because it takes two to tango in this kind of thing for him to be a culture war totem for the right he needs to be um a culture war uh you know boogeyman for the left and vice versa and that we've seen this now more and more over the last 25 years well maybe maybe the other way to think about it is Mm -hmm. that for those of us who were saying in 2015 and 2016 look i mean if, if trump is anything he's a liberal he doesn't have conservative opinions on things. He's a protectionist. He's given money to Planned Parenthood. He's done this. He's done that. He's done the other thing. And maybe none of it got, you know, effective purchase because he was running so clearly as a anti-liberal, anti-mainstream culture candidate. And so in that sense, we couldn't convince people on the right that he wasn't one of us because he was being treated exactly as one of us would be treated or as they would be treated. And maybe this explains the evangelicals, you know, why did the evangelicals vote for him 81 to 19? Because, you know, he was being abused, not deservedly, but by the same people who abused them. Yeah. I, 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 I sort of buy this. I don't think this is new. So I, I actually feel like it's 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 the other way around the other side of the telescope. It, it, it never occur, it would never have occurred to somebody twenty twenty five years ago um, in in just trying to garner an audience, and that's I think really what Trump how Trump has innovated for better or for worse the political sphere is that he thinks of voters as an audience first and as voters and activists second, and, and we never thought that you could actually garner that a small audience or a niche audience or a very specific audience you could make money at that in show business, right? You never thought that would ever happen. Um, but with the multiple channels and like this incredible uh, giant consumer apt- appetite for entertainment, that's changed. 
And I think it's the same way that you could you could walk around big parts of this country and never meet a Hillary voter and never meet a Trump voter. Uh, and yet those two people managed to get and cobble together a whole lot of votes. I mean, a whole lot of people voted for Hillary Clinton and a whole lot of people voted for Donald Trump. That's sort of an insane thing when you think about it, how many people did that one thing that one day. Um, and I kind of feel like the culture war that we keep talking about is also part of this nostalgia we have for uh, a common culture, which we have not had in this country for about 20 years. Um, it's not new that you listen to the top, that what I think is on my top 10. If I listen to a top 10 radio station, my top 10 is different from your top 10. And uh, everyone, everyone has everyone's bestseller list is different and everyone's playlist is different. And that's been the case since they started multiplexing uh, and, and quadruplexing your TV offerings. Yeah, we, except have, one... we don't have a we don't have a we do not have a culture war in this country because the cultures just simply don't interact. So we have an atomized culture in which each, you know, atom, each atomized area completely imagines the worst of the other. And, you know, it's like this astounding Facebook post that somebody dug up this week uh, from a guy named Reznikov who works for the uh, left-wing group Think Progress. Uh, This hilarious thing about how he hires a plumber, the plumber comes to his house, the plumber is fixing his sink. He begins spitting this fantasia about how the plumber is probably a Trump voter, though he doesn't actually know. He hasn't asked him. And doesn't the guy know that he's Jewish? And doesn't the guy understand as a Trump voter that he feels threatened by Trump because of the alt-right? And why is he in his house? And he's going to kill him? And he's so <laughs> terrified? And, you know, this it does is sound like a microdose. Right. <laughs> But I, I mean, I this hope. was shared like hundreds of thousands of times. I, I think a but, lot of it I, by I, people like us to sort of explain. But this delusional notion that you know a guy comes into your house and because he vote might have voted for somebody that you didn't vote for, he is therefore evil and will will harm you. But but also the what's interesting about that too is the unashamedness of the post that. This person wrote that and posted it and wanted people to read it because he could not imagine a world in which there are people who would read that piece and think, you loser. What a loser. What a crazy <laughs> nut job. Because yeah, but I don't so think anybody did say that. Like in his bubble, they didn't. Well, that's what I mean. Like, that's what I mean. So yeah. the idea that we have a culture war in this country, we don't. We, we have we have a culture cold war at best, but no one's armed. What we do is we, we, we individually pick the weirdest things about the other side. And freak out of them, or we decide somehow organically on one specific topic, like like transgender bathrooms, and everyone have a freak out about it, even though the the, the statistically the amount the, your ability to encounter a transgendered person is like tri- is statistically trivial. I mean, it in really isn't, and especially in the bathroom, it just isn't going to happen in any meaningful way that requires anyone to talk about it, but. Um, it re- we've decided to freak out about it because, well, that's our audience. Our audience wants to freak out about it. It reminds me of my favorite – one of my favorite lines from The Simpsons, which, again, I have not watched The Simpsons in regularly in 10 years, but it sticks with you. Um, uh, there's an episode where the kids in Shelbyville and the kids in Springfield yeah. are right. like uh, at war, chasing each other, freaking out. I can't remember what the premise was, but – at one point, they're in the woods, the kids from Springfield, and Milhouse finds a candy wrapper, and he picks it up, and he looks at it, and he says, oh, 
those the, the, he says the kids from Shelbyville must have been here. Those Shelbyville kids, those Shelbyville kids, they love candy. They love it for the sweet, sweet taste. <laughs> right. It's this. I, I I get why we're making fun of the guy on Facebook because the guy's an idiot. But what I what drives me crazy is the tendency on the left and on the right these days to pick out stuff that they do themselves yeah. and say, well, look how horrible they are for doing this thing that we did five minutes ago. Well, then how about, so- can I give you my best example of this? It's not, it's not exactly this, but Paul Krugman yesterday had a column called deficits do matter. Oh yeah. Right. About how there's the danger. We really have to work on the deficit. And then somebody dug up the fact that Kevin that the yeah. third weekend of uh, the third week of October, he wrote a piece saying Hillary needs to do a lot of deficit spending and, <laughs> right. and do a giant infrastructure program. I'm we, talking we about li- less than a- three months yeah. between these two columns. Now we that post is not a link to that. Say, that. Yeah, that was Kevin Williamson's column today. It was, it was it's great. We should we will post a link to that because it, I, it is true. It's just it, it's but I but again I, I go back to the we we keep talking about a culture war as if. What happens in, say, last year or whatever that was when the college campuses blew up or Yale blew up and it was a you know, top front page story, as if that really has any impact at all on anyone aside from the very few people who are involved. It just – it's a very strange yeah, thing. I'm going you know, to push back on this a little bit, Rob. I mean I agree with you that the, Cold, right, War right. Anal- the Cold War analogy is better than an actual culture war, right? And the culture war thing – it's always a metaphor, right? I mean, it's never actually been about a literal war. The only literal culture war we ever had was called, you know, the Civil War, which was right. ugly. Um, but, you know, in the Cold War, uh, first of all, there was sort of a war of ideas going on. And there's definitely one of those going on in America um, where you have two visions of what this country is supposed to be like. And, and it's very, you know, black and white. But moreover, right. during the Cold War, there were a lot of hot wars on the periphery, there was Vietnam, there was Korea, there was Grenada, there were all these little things. And we do have those kinds of culture wars in our country. They're called cultural battles, but they happen, and some of them matter. I mean, like, I agree that Yale's a bubble, Yale's a microcosm of asininity and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, there are a lot of people <clears throat> who would like to have access to the prestige and the, 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 the education that one gets by going to Yale, and there is a sense out there that a lot of these institutions are, have, have closed to people who don't see things the same way or who cannot yeah. reprogrammed to agree with the bubble thinking of the left once they get there. And I think that's something that deservedly um, arouses a lot of resentment. And you know, like everyone, you know, people, people who subscribe to HBO, you know, yeah, they get to watch Game of Thrones. And they get to see some sports stuff, and they get to see the things that they want to see and the movies they want to see. But they also get subjected to a lot of left-wing jackassery and, and girls and all of this sort of left-wing bubble stuff that mocks a lot of people's views. And we're told by people like Meryl Streep that if you don't like this kind of stuff, you're a Philistine. And I think that's – you know, so there, there are real contests. I, 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 I buy that. I buy that. I, I guess what I mean is just on a more practical level – just so we can define culture and culture is popular culture and high culture and culture in general is that, you know, 24 hours of the day, you sleep eight of them, say and you work eight of them, that leaves you with eight, right? And just say you 
have children and you commute and you make dinner and all sorts of things. It takes three or four hours. At most, you got four hours a day, but most to spend, you know, glued to the TV or listening to music, doing whatever you want. And that's not that much. And people uh, navigate their choices pretty well. And they can navigate your choices. And you can have a full life watching the shows you like, Duck Dynasty and whatever, and never encounter, never encounter girls except in some blog post written or tweet by a conservative you follow condemning it. Like we, we spend, I mean, it, it's, but it's what like else are we going to talk about, Rob? There was a fascinating a kabuki, detail. Wait. It's a kabuki war. It's not no, a but it, it, Some yeah. of it's not a kabuki war. I'll give you an example. So in the Russia hacking declassified report, there is a detail about how Russia is paying for and is working on disinformation related to fracking. Right. Hi, hi, you right. know, yeah. uh, yes, the, uh, the, the natural gas uh, system that has, you know, basically uh, transformed American energy production over the last decade and is bad for Russia because it floods the market with natural gas. And it obviously cost Russia a lot of money because it means that the market is much larger than it was before. So where in America in liberal culture is there a pro fracking message right now? This is not because Russia is promoting an anti-fracking message that most of the culture is anti-fracking, but has there been a single movie made or a television show made about how fantastic it has been for South Dakota and Pennsylvania and some other places <clears throat> where they have found these places, you know, where there's an economic boom and where, right. you know, basically right. the cost of the cost of, uh, you know, of energy to poor people across America has fallen by 70% in the last 10 years. Right. There's none of that. So uh, and in fact, you will have an entire culture of people from Lena Dunham to everybody who was like protesting at Standing Rock Reservation. Matt Damon made a whole anti-fracking movie, remember? Right. Yeah. And so where where is the message where, you know, there's the bubble, the bubble and no one needs to go to Yale. But the culture war over something as significant as America's energy independence and breaking the back of Putin's ability to project his power and and weakening the the radical Arab states that, you know, uh, including even our, you know, pseudo friends like Saudi Arabia uh, by, you know, by basically, mm. you know, creating a glut of oil right. in the world that halves their power. Um, because of these cultural messages, there are a whole lot of people in America who might be willing to hear this and be excited by it. Who for to whom it, it never reaches. Um, and so what? So, you're you're uh, you're one you're one of the Putin's guys now. Is that it? You like him now? What's going on? I'm anti-Putin. You're anti-Putin. I want Putin to be. I want Putin's economic power to be destroyed. Uh, you're he's just, he's, look. He's just a powerful leader. He's a strong leader. I don't know what your problem is. <laughs> But I'm just saying, like, this is the fight. There's all this, like, you know, suddenly. Yeah, okay. But then, I mean, I, look. Then I'll push back. Yes, yeah. I, I agree that there, 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 there is a. I wouldn't call it a culture war because that implies that what are, the, the solution is to get more people in more studios to make movies about fracking, and that ain't never going to happen. The, the solution is for uh, a, a one third of America's right wing billionaires who you know gather in, in sort of a, some kind of. League of Supervillains lair for the Koch brothers annual retreat or whatever it is and and make a movie about fracking. 
right. and distribute well, it because you can do that now. Think it will be about fracking. It's more like this kind of general cultural sense that you know these orthodoxies harden, and you don't even know how it happens. You know, I'll give you okay. another example. So but wait a minute, wait a minute. If I'm analy- wait, but here's the thing. if I'm analyzing a marketplace of an audience and an audience receptibility, a receptiveness to to uh, you know a conservative or even pro fracking attitude. Um, I would point to Election Day 2016. Right. That's a lot, but, a lot of people did that. Okay, but here's another example. Just talking about sort of the left's orthodoxies and how they're impenetrable to the left. So here in New York State, uh, Andrew Cuomo, who was clearly running for president in 2020, made a big announcement that he had finally gotten this energy company, Entergy, to close down the Indian Point nuclear plant in Westchester. Which has been a, a you know cause celebre for thirty years. This is this you know plant because it's so close to it's thirty five miles from New York City. And what if there's a China syndrome event? And how could you evacuate the entity? It's too populous. Blah 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 blah. So Indian Point's going to close down, right? So now you have the phenomenon of Andrew Cuomo having blocked fracking in New York State, which he did, and he is now closing down a nuclear power plant, which he is doing. And where exactly is New York State supposed to get its energy? Like, it's all this, like, wonderful service to the environmentalist, you know, uh, cause and to the environmentalist pseudo-gods. And yet, you know, in New York State, so New York, so get, energy prices in New York State are going to go up 40, 50 percent. And, you know, a lot of New York State is poor. And a lot of people in New York State have cars, and a lot of people, it's very cold here for five months out of the year, and heating costs are very high. So how is it that we live in a world in which Andrew Cuomo can get away with this without there being any kind of pushback in the state from the people who are going to suffer from it? And the answer is that the cultural orthodoxy is so you know, um, calcified in relation to this, that the message it can't but get through. Right, but again, I, the message and can't not, get through. That's not because of movies, and it's not because of Lena Dunham, and it's not because of HBO. It's a kind of gen- – that's why it's not true that we're just – But why can't it get through? What, what do you mean it can't get through? Good Lord. We, we have a popular podcast that doesn't me. exist. I don't, know the, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm saying that, that – Because th- nobody's doing it. Nobody's trying. Okay. You can't have a culture war if one side decides to stay home ah, and complain about – Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Let me finish. Yeah. If okay. one side decides to stay okay. home and can complain about Lena Dunham and, uh, and, and um, you know, uh, safe spaces. Like if, okay. if all – our side loves to tweet. It said we should be making movies. We should no, be talking me, about no, nuclear power. Let me push back on you there because maybe this There's is the entirely too part. much pushing back on me, I got to say. I'm pushing back on you. What I want is total agreement. And you know why? Because you're just passing exit 36, Shelter Rock Road. (laughs) Am I Um, close? You you are pretty close. Well, no, I'm still not not that far. far. All right. So you're at at Lakeville Road? Lakeville Road, exit 33, which is known to Godfather fans. Yeah, I was going to say. The Lakeville Road brothers are boys. The Lakeville Road, the boys. Yeah, uh, 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 protect. You know, they helped protect uh, Fredo. So um, I'm on exit twenty nine. Exit twenty nine, John. Just saying. Twenty nine. That's uh, exit thirty is East Hampton Road and the Cross Island uh, Expressway. But I don't remember. Are you going to pass the causeway where they shot Sonny? Uh, look what they did. The to causeway. My boy. No, that's look off the Meadowbrook Parkway. You got. You're so. You're. That's down by the South Shore. I mean, come on. I don't know where he's driving to. 
know? <laughs> <laughs> this traffic you know what's funny is that there are certain mo- there's, yeah. Wink. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. This traffic has been brought to you by Wink. Wink. Yes, Wink. W I N C. Because if you like good wine but can't even spell sommelier, it's time to take the stress out of wine shopping and try Wink. The new way to get all the best wines perfectly matched to your palate. Wink, spelled W-I-N-C, as I said, works directly with winemakers and growers from all over the world to create delicious wine and deliver it right to your door. Wink's 100% satisfaction guarantee means if you don't like a bottle they send you, they'll replace it with a bottle you love, no questions asked. You don't just get sent random bottles. Wink is a personalized wine membership that recommends wine specifically for you based on the results of your palate profile quiz. You can also rate all of the wine you receive from Wink so they learn about your taste with every order and constantly personalize the wine they send. Sign up for Wink right now and gain immediate insider access to the best fine wine from all over the world. Find out for yourself why the hosts of Glob Culture and thousands of other satisfied wine lovers are raving about Wink. The best part? Wink is offering Glop listeners $20 off right now. 20 bucks when you go to trywink.com slash glop. That's T-R-Y-W-I-N-C dot com slash glop they'll even cover the shipping think about that you'll get fine wine personalized to your palate delivered right to your door so try wink and get 20 bucks off complimentary shipping right now when you go to trywink.com slash glop that's try com slash glop and our thanks to wink for sponsoring the glop podcast so okay i want to freelance i want to freelance something right now because we were just talking about geography and popular culture and streets i want to Perhaps start a new regular feature on Glop called Stump the Pod. So with <laughs> yeah. without going without heeing to the Google machine, what John, what was at eleven eleven Old Country Road? <laughs> it's gonna kill you. Maud's house. No. It's oh. something that no one who didn't grow up in New York in the nineteen seventies, because it's I'll give you a hint because it's a little unfair, it's not quite pop culture. It was a commercial. Raceway Park. Coronet Furniture Stores. Oh, Coronet Oh, Furniture. I remember that. <laughs> oh. So now you're going to spend the afternoon looking at because they're all over YouTube. You can look it up all the old Coronet with the, with the two brothers with the Jean Shallot mustaches. Oh, my God. So, uh, anyway. Uh, do you hey, guys you remember an old time? Old New York City excitement. So, Mike, there's a girl in my daughter's class at school uh, who comes from a family that has brought together both the Century 21 discount department store and Jordash Jeans. Wow. The marriage wow. between Jordash Jeans and the, 20, and the Century 21 uh Discount department store. This is the most exciting, most excited I've, I've ever been. <clears throat> These two uh, icons, Jordash jeans, of course, being the original advertised jean, like in, in the mid seventies. Yeah. Before then, jeans were not a fashion. Sure, did not have any place not in fashion. Jor- not um, Jor- great Hamaker Schlemmer Brookstone wedding. Have I been so excited? Not just a great Crate and Barrel Abercrombie and Fitch. <laughs> Um, do you remember that? It was just George Dash. has the look that's right. Right. She's got the look you want. Yeah, you want to know together. better. Yeah, fantastic. Listen. Working, playing, something. Saying, hey, or uh, not. George has, has the, the look that's, that's right. Yeah. Did you guys remember from New York? Thank God this podcast is free. Do you guys remember? 
one of my favorite um, in in old time New York when I would hang out. One of my favorite radio commercials was about for for two dentists, and um, and it was doctor uh, doctors Bellman and Flug, and I think it was Harry Flug or something did the kind of uh, the voiceover. Hi, I'm I'm doctor uh, Harry Flug, uh, dentist something something something, and then they inexplicably decided to spend money on a uh, jingle, but I guess because you know I only had about a thirty second spot, the jingle was just this: Doctors Melman and Flug. That was it, and I can't get it out of my head. Well, it's been in my head for thirty all, years. Now, now it's now it's in all our heads. Can I just Doctors say Doctors Melman and Flug? Go ahead. Before we before we move on to Rogue One, because we have people uh, clamoring to hear our opinions of Rogue One, I just want to say. Uh, that Rob, you said that the culture war is only being fought by one side, and I had I I have this idea that maybe this helps explain why Twitter is so valuable to Trump because mm-hmm. it represents an incredibly cheap and cost efficient yeah. way to conduct a culture war from an anti-establishment side. You just say their yeah. ratings stink. They're terrible. She's overrated. I did better. You know, who wants to watch Blackish? So racist. You know, stuff like that. All he has to do is like come up with a thought, do it. It gets, you know, this kind of giant amplification. And it represents in some incredibly vulgar, simple way a kind of hardened anti-left, anti-establishment position that – Somebody like George W. Bush would have thought was way beneath his dignity even to begin to breathe or consider hand, you right. know, right. right? Right. So like, I, no, I, I agree with that. says he hates black people and wanted them to die in Katrina, and only after Bush leaves office did he say he found that disgusting. Right? Trump, how how many seconds would pass with yeah, yeah nanoseconds right. about him? Right. And Trump going after him with a two by four. But but can I can I can we just talk, uh, talk a little bit just a. Uh, uh, I mean, I know we have to talk about the iPhone and other stuff, but uh, there is a TV show on right now. It's called Last Man Standing, and it stars Tim Allen, a recognizable TV star, had been on a, a, a TV show for years, um, uh, Home Improvement. And then he was in feature films and did some really, really great movies, including Galaxy Quest, and he was the voice of Buzz Lightyear. He's a genuine TV star. He came back to do a TV show uh, called Last Man Standing, and it really wasn't working that well. Uh, in its first season, it was kind of generic, and they didn't quite figure out what it was. And he is a conservative, and he decided, well, why don't we just make it and have people argue about politics on this thing? And so they started to do that, and they didn't make, they didn't announce that. They just started to do it, and he started to take more overtly politically conservative stances. And it, it, this is a show that no one is talking about. Uh, this is a show that doesn't even do that well in the ratings all in, but it does well enough to stay on the air. No one's talking about it. It's not the people who read articles about it, but last week or two weeks ago, um, the studio that produces it, they sold it into syndication, which is supposed to be a very soft market. Uh, it's hard to sell shows into reruns now. Um, there's no appetite, we're told, for the uh, traditional multicam sitcoms, um, and they sold it for a whopping, whopping, eye-popping number, a number so huge that – uh, people in Hollywood, more than than reacting to the presidential election, are saying maybe we should all have our version of that show uh, uh, on TV, a sitcom like that. Are on you TV. referring if- to a show similar to say Kevin Can Wait Monday nights on CBS? Well, I, I would I would not. I would I would say the opposite because we we don't do political stuff on our show. Our show. We're just not that interested in it. But 
Um, I would – were I NBC or I CBS, uh, even ABC who has Last Man Standing um, or definitely Fox, I would be asking myself, why am I putting on these twee, alt-comic kind of quirky little comedies that nobody gives a damn about and nobody cares about and just seem to be all about Instagram and characters speaking in weird arch – you know, like uh, everyone sounds like a, a, a hyper amplified version of Chandler on Friends. Instead of doing that, why don't you go for the big fat middle, uh, which is not going to be as big as it used to be. It used to be a 25, 30 share, but it's going to be smaller now. But why not go for that and uh, make a big pot of money at the other end of, uh, of the, you know, of the five years of the 100 episodes? That, yeah, you, that, know how, that you know what they're going to do. It's not being lost. Right. So Channing Dungy, the head of ABC said after the Trump election, we haven't There's heard people wife. enough and we need to, you know, we need to pay attention to this audience that we're not serving. Uh, CBS, uh, it's the week that people go to a press tour uh, where critics go and hear uh, the about the upcoming fair on the networks. CBS has a show coming on called Superior Donuts set in Chicago. I just want to read to you a little about it, okay? Judd Hirsch plays a 60s radical who now owns a donut shop in a Chicago neighborhood that's being gentrified. Uh, Katie Seagal plays a donut shop patron who is a cop. Jermaine Fowler is an employee who wants to liven up the place. Um, Once upon a time, topicality was de rigueur for American broadcast comedy series, but today creators took a certain number of questions from more conservative TV critics wondering whether this show would be off-putting to the Trump administration and followers, including one dog whistle question as to whether they were worried about audience reaction, given that people are especially sensitive now. So how how do you suppose Superior Donuts is going to come down when it gets sold oh, into okay. syndication? <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Yeah, if, it, who knows? If, it, if it's successful, it'll do great. I mean, but, no, because the funny or... part is that you could have all in the fa- this could be you could be in a situation where you know all in the family was made yeah. as an as an effort to expose right. you know and the culture the culture in nineteen seventy. What happened is that Archie Bunker became the, the, hero. the hero. He was a right. much more rounded, interesting uh, character for whom you could feel empathy but than because yeah, he went to work every right, day. He put he put on a, a hat and a, a lunch pail, and people forget Archie Bunker went to work, and then he came home and ate dinner. Then he went back to work. He was drove a cab yeah. at night. There yeah. was something heroic about Archie Bunker. He had earned the right to be a moron. He because uh, he was paying for the food that they were eating. Yeah, so because, that, that was, because that was, yeah, Norman Lear also knew realized he had gold in this character, and he didn't yeah. have gold in his and left he hated it. character. He hated it, but he did, but he also wanted to get rich. And boy, did he get rich! Boy, did he get um, rich! Boy, did he get rich! Boy, did he get rich! And you know who else is going to get rich? You, if you if you become a client of HelloFresh, because it will enrich your life. HelloFresh. Wants That's to change it. the way people eat forever. They believe everyone deserves honest, natural, delicious, healthy food, whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family that runs at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more. HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to, exp- to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. Uh, HelloFresh is the real meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient, creates new recipes with step-by-step instructions, Designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cook short on time. It sources the freshest ingredients, measured to the exact quantities needed so there's no food waste. They employ a full-time registered dietitian on staff who reviews each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. And it currently offers customers a classic box or veggie box and will soon be launching a family box. Customers can order three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people, all delivered to your doorstep in a special insulated box. 
And here is a special offer for Glop listeners. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Glop Culture 35, all one word when you subscribe. Glop Culture 35 is the coupon code. Thanks to HelloFresh for sponsoring the Glop podcast. Now, quickly, Rogue One, Jonah, science fiction nerd. Yeah. I liked it. I thought it was good. Um, I thought it had its issues, but I thought it was probably, it was definitely better than um, Force Awakens. Um, At least it didn't seem, I mean, like, I am so sick of Star Wars movies about trying to destroy a Death Star or now a really big Death Star. You know, I mean, come up with a new friggin' plot device or MacGuffin or whatever. Um, and the plans of the Death Star. Yeah, so at least this this was like derivative of the first Star Wars. Anybody who hasn't seen it yet, spoilers are coming, but come on. Um, it all takes place literally like up to the last minute before the first Star Wars, the 1977 Star Wars. And um, I liked it. Because if, if you wanted to know, hey, how did those plans get into R2-D2? This is basically a $300 million explanation of how the plans got into R2-D2. It also solves a major problem with the original Star Wars, which is that how did they have this incredible vulnerability in the Death Star? You know, what what sort of cheap contractor did they hire to screw that up? Um, (laughs) Like the Death Star, like the big dig of the galaxy. And this explains that no, 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 it was sabotage. And that this is this heroic story. And, it wasn't a contractor turning to like the Grand Moff Tarkin or whatever, say, "Hey, you want it? You want it good or you want it fast?" No, <laughs> it, it was more like Stuxnet. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so I liked that. I liked that it was aimed at adults. Um, I mean, still childish adults, immature adults who like science fiction and all that kind of stuff, but adults nonetheless. It was more serious movie. We were again spoiler coming. Uh, my daughter and I were both kind of stunned at how willing they were to kill all of these likable characters. And then you realize they kind of had to, given the context that it was setting up the next Star Wars. Um, so I liked it. I thought it was a little complicated in parts. Um, I thought it was, uh, um, I thought the CGI, I kind of disagree with you, John, about part of it. I thought that the, the CGI of, of uh, Admiral Tarkin or Grand Mal Tarkin, whatever the frig his name is, um, was a little off-putting. There's a little bit of an uncanny valley problem still with him. They could have done yeah. less more, or just brought in a different can, a different actor. Um, yeah. I don't think they needed to have him in that. Um, and uh, but I thought it kind of worked with Princess Leia. Um, and it was kind of nice given Carrie Fisher's passing that she, you know, had that sort of punctuation mark. Uh, and uh, otherwise, yeah, it was a good movie. Uh, Uncanny Valley is a fantastic term, by the way. It describes this uh, paradox in special effects where the closer these uh, animated CGI simulacra of human beings get to being like human beings, the more uneasy they make us feel with the tiny gaps between what we act like and what can't quite get captured by the by if, the CGI and someone made it really, the uncanny valley. And it's, a, I think it's, it's, 
it's a fantastic term because it can be applied to nothing else somehow. If 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 you haven't seen it after this, maybe we can link to it. Um, on Thirty Rock, I think season two or season three, Tracy Morgan wants to make a porn computer game because that's intersects his two main interests in life, right? Yeah. And he gets he has to have it explained to him that it won't work because of the uncanny valley problem. That as the closer you get to human like, <laughs> the more off putting it is. And the explanation, it's a YouTube video, I'm sure. Google it, look it up. It is a brilliant explanation. And I, I'm pretty sure Uncanny Valley was coined by a computer scientist doing artificial right. intelligence stuff. But um, it also explains why Al Gore is so off putting. He's <laughs> yeah, so right. surprisingly lifelike, but not. and yet not quite human. Yeah, and how exactly about Hillary right. with the balloons? Hillary with the balloons, I think. Exactly. Uh, yeah. uh, I mean, that expression on her face was like, "Oh my God!" There was a as as Rob as Rob's Longview column, I think, would have uh, captured it. You know, there was a glitch in the programming when yeah, she the guys was in looking the van. at the balloons. No, no, the balloons aren't, aren't there to hurt you. They're not going to. <laughs> don't eat the balloons. Don't eat the balloons. Yeah, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think that's actually true. The the thing about the Uncanny Valley is that it also stipulates, which I think is also true, that the less realistic something is. The more real you're willing, the, the more the more you're willing to accept it as real. So a right. cartoon you can get into because it's a cartoon. It's not trying to be anything. But when you when you start approaching it, you either have to have to nail it or you don't. I remember years ago, a friend of mine was working for Bob Zemeckis, and um, and she would always say because uh, he you know, Bob Zemeckis was the director of uh, of um, Back to the Future among other great pictures, but also he was obsessed with uh, a motion capture where you basically the actor put an actor in a motion capture suit, which is just kind of a weird little leotard with a lot of little uh, uh, electrodes attached to it. And you, uh, the actor moves around, and then you, you turn it into a sort of computer thing, and it gets really close. Like Polar Express was the first one, and then Monster House. But each time it failed, it was weird, and people didn't like it. And each time they would do another one, they go, no, 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 we fixed that now. We fixed it. We fixed it. It's much well, better I'll, now. I'll tell you, it, I took it never worked. Ahead, so uh, I saw – I'd be curious if you guys have ever seen it. I mean, I, I'd be actually disturbed if Rob had seen it, but but John has kids. Um, there's a movie called Mars Needs Moms Oh yeah. that I saw with my daughter. And admittedly, it was late at night. We decided after dinner as a treat. We were in Santa Monica. We went to a theater in Santa Monica, and we saw like the 9 o'clock showing, and we were almost alone in the theater. This was about five years ago. And, well, I was there. I saw you guys. Wait, well, I was. Say yeah, it was. Un, it had a, such a huge uncanny valley problem, and was it almost. I mean, it would not shock me if it wasn't like a, you know, a pederast cult favorite because it was so creepy. Because you had like these guys with these characters with a five o'clock shadow, um, who was actually mentally still a ten-year-old boy, but in a grown-up body. And all he wanted was like to hang out with other kids and like be with kids. Yeah. This is a cartoon character. <laughs> like even my daughter, who was only like seven years old at the time, was completely freaked out about this thing. <laughs> and it's a horrible, disturbing movie. Um, yeah. And by the and way, I, by the way, caused a hundred and fifty million dollar write down at the studio that made it. It was such a huge. Uh, flop. Now we should turn to our final again. A request from a Glop listener wants us to uh, 
consider the 10th anniversary of the um, of the iPhone, of the introduction wow. of the iPhone. Not insane, 10 years, only now. 10 years. And only 10 years. And uh, um, I, I'm pretty sure that this was one of the very few cases in the history of computing in which I did not say, well, it'll never work. Usually I say things like, who's going to want an iPad? Or, you know, who's ever going to use a bank card? You, you, you need to give your check to the teller because, you know, you'll never trust that it's in the machine. That's me. I'm the guy who doesn't understand, you know, that the future is upon us. Um, except for the iPhone, which uh, I think the first time anybody put the iPhone in your hand and you sort of used it for about five seconds, you said, oh, my God, this changes everything. You, well, what's interesting, have yeah. Same- well, yeah, but what's interesting with the iPhone is that if you actually see it sort of historical context, right, it, it, you, you sort of march up through the uh, design innovations and technological innovations of the two things that it combined, or three things, really. Um, the big, clunky deck of cards iPod, which was when it was released, it was competing with other MP3 players that were sort of shaped like Discman, you know, that, that kind of thing. Um, and but it didn't have any more memory and didn't have any better display. It just was in a better package. And then it, then then we had the the Palm Pilot, the Palm Pilot Five especially was this incredible um, touch not, kind of a touchpad device that was the, what they call the PDA, the Personal Digital Assistant, kept everything but didn't communicate. Yeah, keep it the stylus. And then on the other side, you had these innovations in the phone technology, including the BlackBerry and then the Sony Ericsson and the, the, the phones that started to like grasp at like doing more for you and displays that were more uh, comprehensive. And then and it just took Steve, Steve Jobs to do this incredible thing, which is to put it all together in this thin package, which he got basically because he, he browbeat and, and battered his engineers to do it. Uh, and he and he has a, he had a phrase which he he said I think all this technology should be lickable. I want it to be lickable. Which disgusting, but you're, but but you're I, forgetting you're forgetting. I think the really what may have been the single most important part of the iPhone, which was the camera. That is, you had a phone, you had it as a PDA, you had it as right. a as a uh, music listening device, and it was a camera. But the camera and itself, each of those, a, yeah. But in each a, of those not a big ways, the first one. But go ahead. But in each of those ways, it was not as good as other things on the market. The BlackBerry was arguably a better right. device because it was easier to type on, right? So the BlackBerry was better as a messaging device. Um, because it was AT&T specific, it was the worst phone you could get in terms of coverage because you couldn't get it except through AT&T. And for music, I mean, I guess music it was probably as good as any music device. No, you would was, get. Anyway, there yeah. weren't any others. But, but, um, and then this idea that you could integrate it so that you could buy the music while you were listening to it, and that you could, um, you know, and then this this world of the app, which I'm not even sure they even was a was a total happenstance almost. They didn't understand because Jobs always wanted that to be a closed universe, you know, that nothing nothing external was supposed to be, you know, sale, sellable on the iPhone that Apple didn't create. And then this entire culture of the app, which has, you know, added trillions of dollars to the U.S. economy in the last 10 years that came about almost as a sort of sidelight where people were trying to figure out what fun things you could do with this device 
and add right. to it and make it more 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 useful. It's uh, almost impossible to say to to really um, draw a diagram and trace all of the, uh, the the benefits or descendants or economic descendants of the iPhone. It's it's yeah. really really hard. I, yeah, I, I, I agree with all that um, to one extent or another. I do think you know something that John brought up about how like the the BlackBerry keypad um, is better than the iPhone keypad, which I agree with a thousand percent. Um, uh, but it raises this, you know, very in in very wonky, geeky economics and sociology circles. There's this whole debate about path dependence and whether or not the market actually brings the best product forward, or if not, or if there are certain products uh, that get locked in because of a certain set of decisions that bring it along. And we do not need to get deep in the weeds and all that. But I do think that that that. Um, we we tend to ascribe genius and and gold medal status to whichever product we end up using, right? Whichever one wins the market share, um, and so like you know the Tucker automobile was a better car than the cars that beat it out for market share. There are, there are these these examples of this, and um, it also raises the issue of the sort of uh, happenstance and accidental nature of a lot of this. Like apparently the Apple people were stunned that people would want a bigger iPhone. I mean, they just could not believe because the whole culture had been about miniaturize, 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 make it smaller. And, um, and they have such antipathy. They want it, you know, jobs wants no moving parts. Well, it turns out that your brain actually wants moving parts. Like it is so much easier to type on a tactile keyboard than it is to type on a flat screen. But they want to lead the culture to go in a certain way, and I find it kind of frustrating because I'm such an Apple guy and such a Mac guy, but I would much rather have, if they came out with an iPhone that actually had a tactile keyboard. I mean, I think it's fair to say that the, you know, the astounding innovation of the, of the iPhone and then the iPad after it, which made Apple the single most successful tech company in the history of the universe with – you know, a market share that's sort of unbelievable, you know, when it was failing, you know, when it was sort of a company that had the tiny amount of the, of the, of the consumer computer market. But, you know, the last four years and particularly since Steve Jobs death have not been good for Apple, you know, it's growth. Well, they've been great for Apple. Yeah, right. But it's growth is slowing and, you know, it hasn't, it hasn't introduced any new products and there haven't been that many innovations. And, you know, if Apple doesn't somehow find, it's way to, you know, taking these devices to the next level, not that I know what that is, Apple will be superseded in the, you know, in, in the next 10 years by something else. And there's no reason to think that Tim Cook knows how to run a company, you know, knows how to run an innovative company. He knows how to keep the golden goose laying eggs with, you know, with sort of introductions and refinements of the product. But you know, uh, somebody's going to figure out is going to figure out what what no one thought should be on the device that should now be on the device, or how to improve it in a way that changes your life, including having a better keyboard, a keyboard that somehow appears mystically and then disappears, or something like that. You know, something like that. But I mean, it's hard to argue that uh, what what is a better keyboard when you consider just how ubiquitous. The Apple is the, the iPhone is, and how ubiquitous smartphones with the touchpad keyboard are. Um, I mean, what Apple managed to do, what Steve Jobs managed to do, is to sort of relentlessly focus on personal use of everything, and 
And that was when Microsoft was thinking, well, no, this is all about enterprise. Um, and, you know, there was a time before, really, really before 2000, when we kind of think of it entirely as the web, the cloud, but when there were the big battle was between um, workstations, networked workstations like Sun Microsystems and the PC. And that was even happening in the 90s, in the early 90s, mid 90s, especially that no one really hadn't really been decided yet. But somehow Steve Jobs knew that what, you, what people wanted was a cool thing to walk around with and to listen to music with. Um, and that, that as a goal, I think, as a product goal, was, is what led them to their, their, their worldwide dominance as not only just a producer of smartphones and electronics, but also as a company. Right, but also it is the fact that you can now walk down the block – you can, you know, I was in London for vacation. I had my iPhone out constantly because it revolutionizes traveling, right? So you're somewhere you need to go. You're in a city you don't know how to navigate particularly well. You enter where you are. You enter your destination. It tells you how to walk to the underground, how, which underground line to take, when you get out, how to walk to the place you're going. And imagine, you know, it's like you can't even remember what life was like when you had to, like, have one of those giant maps and you flip to A12 and then you would go to the next page and you can't find it on the map and all that. You know, it's like a kind of transformation of the way we expect to have information at our fingertips everywhere, anywhere, out of our country, somewhere else, on the street. And then you buy stuff and then you can, like, you know, you're going around and – you want something and your kid wants something and you go onto Amazon and you buy it while you're walking or, you know, while you're in the parking lot or something like that. You're in a bookstore. You decide to buy a book instead of at Barnes and Noble. You buy it on Amazon because it's 40 percent cheaper while you're standing in the bookstore, which seems to be a little not cricket, but you can do yes, it anyway. Yeah. Right. But uh, but but there we are, you know, um, so it is a kind of. It changed the way we think about how we do things, and, and, and it liberated us to do things much more easily that you know we have already forgotten were so much harder. And yet, now with all the hacking stuff, you know, I wonder the seamless, you know, PayPal one click, Amazon one click thing. You know, you do that, and you know, maybe in three or four years, it's going to turn. Out if you try to do that, your entire bank account will be emptied. You know, in the half a second that you're you know, waiting for it to go through, some hacker will be right nearby and manage to sort of climb into your system, get your bank account, route it all to him while you're just waiting for the transaction to complete. Uh, That'll be do, the not, that. do not worry yourself, uh, John Normanovich. <laughs> Everything is fine. You are call, call support. We are taking care of your uh, issues right now. Yeah, what is your password? Please, yeah. uh, please, Mr. Podesta, give to me your password, and it <laughs> yeah. all will be well. It, you, have rich call, you have rich call center in the heartland of United of uh, States America Unites. Which reminds me that uh, if you're not reading, if you don't have a subscription, I'm, I'm now selling a subscription to National Review, but if you, if you are not reading Rob Long's Oh. column in National Review, The Long View. How long have you been doing it now? 25 been, years? Uh, yes, since the third month of the first Clinton administration. Okay, so like twenty, like 24 years. Close, I'm out, 20 I'm, years. And I'm out of jokes. I'm out of material. I mean, if you're out of material, life is out of material. <laughs> yeah, uh, not these days. It is the, you know, it is the greatest long-running single humor column in, oh, you know, in, a, in our t- of our time. That's just all there is to it. Krugman, Krugman's a close second, I think. 
So Jonah, what do you what do you got going on where people can come listen to you and 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 revel in your in your genius and all that? Oh, not much. I'm still in book hell. Um, I'm trying to get this big book done, and it's, it's it's way past deadline, and I'm kind of freaking out, and I'm in a sort of fugue state of stress. But I did last month record my second conversations with Crystal, so now oh. I just need to do. 45 more to catch up with Harvey Mansfield. And... <laughs> uh, I've never done a conversation with, with, with Crystal because I gather it would be like talking to myself. Um, I, 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 I would be interested in watching I am that. Bill Crystal and think Why that is that bad? Me. I think actually what would be very good is you doing a conversation with Crystal, but you play both the parts and like – you change clothes and do different camera angles and respond to each other's points and interrupt each other. Um, I think it'd be actually a pretty funny little skit. But anyway, uh, other than that, um, I'll be on special report on January 12th. If people are listening and uh, other than that, I'm just in book hell. That's all I have to say about that. Oh, Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, At the end of the month in January, I will be at the Roanoke conference in Washington state. Google Roanoke Conference and look it up. Love for you guys to attend. I will. Um, um, glad to talk to any Glop listeners. Rob, I got nothing. Mondays uh, eight eight o'clock CPS. Kevin can wait. That's exactly right. Kevin can wait. Kevin um, can watch uh, for the British guy. He's really, really, Brit- really British fun. Guy's, British guy's really good. I got to do more with him. It's kind of a weird experience to be working do, doing a show that I didn't create. So I have this very analytical view of it. It's amazing. I really I feel like I feel like a showbiz professional. Whereas I think when you have your name ah. on it, when you when you, have, you created something, you're, or me, I shouldn't say you, but me, you get defensive. I get defensive and weirdly prickly about like focus group results and things. Um, but you know, now that I'm just kind of I'm running it, and I'm but it's not mine. I'm like, yeah, give me more more research. Yeah, fine. I'm, that's like uh, that's like being a speechwriter. That's the glory of being a speechwriter. Is that you know ultimately it's not yours. So uh, all the all the authorial a lot of authorial neurosis goes out the window. That was my experience of being a speechwriter, was that I didn't have a more propris. So as a result, I felt as though you know all that mattered was the text in front of me, and then it wasn't you know. Although uh, I think uh, if, if you can, I think if you you can use the phrase a more prop, you've got a lot of a more prop left. Put it that way. Oh yeah, you know I'm saying you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I know what you're saying, but I, I didn't. I didn't go to your any fancy pants Yale, which you're defending on the grounds that it's not, you know, bad or anything. You defended uh, or, Yale. As I defend Yale from the comfort of my Subaru, God. <laughs> in north in the uh, northeast. In the northeast. Yeah. Okay, so I'm now guessing that Rob is past Glen Cove Road. Uh, he is approaching. The I'm Huntington here. exit. You're here. You've arrived. I'm here. I've arrived. He's arrived at his uh, at his workplace where the magic happens. And uh, as for me, I got nothing going on except for the very exciting bat mitzvah of my oldest daughter uh, in about uh, nine days or some nine ten days. And so uh, that's my entire life uh, centers on the on her uh, on her. Achieving her majority as a Jewish adult, uh, even though she's twelve and a half. Yeah, but uh, such is life. Anyway, hey John, one quick uh, Yiddish question. Yes. yes. 
is there a word in Yiddish for the female equivalent of a mensch? Uh, no, you would pr- no, there isn't. I mean, the the classic term would be Ashes Chayel, which is a, a, a which is a sort of a woman of virtue, among you know uh, a pearl of virtue. Um, but no, there is no female. There is no female mensch. Um, but in, in everyday that all that all women are mensches. You can say, but you could since mensch means man, right? I mean, like you could you could say that in sort of a universal sense, a woman could be a mensch, right? I mean, oh yeah, no, so man, locally, mensch, it's fine. Mankind, like, it's no mensch, longer gendered. Mensch is a fantastic word because it. It means man, but what it means is that, like a, a moral, a person who does the right thing. Right. Um, it's the only. I mean, it's sort of a word that should come into English because it it has a very very specific moral meaning. As the you know, as a, to be a mensch is to be a person of you know of upstanding character. Let's say. Well, it, so therefore, should apply to anybody. It came to mind because Paul Krugman is on Twitter talking about how people aren't mensch-like anymore. Um, and if there's a less mensch-like public figure um, than our president, well, then, well, I mean, I, I don't think I don't think Donald Trump is a mensch by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't think that Paul Krugman is is the one to be doling out the mensch awards either. Um, right. But that's a topic for another glop. Let's get out of here. Yeah, yeah, we we, yeah. we gotta we gotta we gotta go. Rob's gotta make the I'm magic. Un, I'm uncomfortable with all of this uh, Hebrew talk. <laughs> what is it? What is it? Well, greatest, greatest of the Lost Ark. The guy who raised Lost Ark says, "I'm uncomfortable with this Jewish ritual." Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> and then his face melts off. Then see, see, see. Don't screw. Get with comfortable. The Jews. Don't screw up the Jews, and yeah. uh, we will. Uh, Don't open the crate I sent you, Rob. I got. It says fresh. It says fresh direct on it. No, don't open it. <laughs> that would be great, wouldn't it? If the Ark was actually in a fresh direct box, or the, be... you could, you know, you could just order it. You order the Ark, well, and it opens it. The face belts. Yeah, Hello Fresh. Or, or Hello Fresh, or Wink, or uh, yeah. you know, any of our uh, any of our fine uh, sponsors, Wink, Nature Box. So yeah, we're we're getting into good. a. I just like to say we're getting into a lot. We got a lot of food sponsors, which yeah. I I know that this is not the we're a little avoir duplaistically challenged here, the three of us. But you know, it's not like we just sit and eat all day. That's all I can say. And our producer uh, Scott Evergut says we got to wrap it up because you know it's he needs to like shower and get out of his pajamas because he's in LA and it's seven <laughs> so Rob's excuse. So do I. Right. So do I goodbye. Goodbye Talk everybody. To- I love Bye. you. Bye. Bye. I'm in the phone with this one
Ricochet. Join the conversation. in this room really belong to the most vilified segments in American society right now. Think about it. Hollywood, foreigners, and the press. <laughs> <laughs>